Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. and welcome to hell this is under consultation an episode by episode podcast guide through the uk's greatest video game challenge tv show games master i am one of your hosts luke owen enjoying the unique sights and smells of the audience cage and hoisting my fun flag over the crow's nest i am ash versus this episode aired on the 15th of November 1994. Premier Manager 3 is top of all formats. Pato Benson is still top of the pops with Baby Come Back. But we've got a new number one at the top of the box office. It's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. No one need ever die. I will stop this. No, you can't achieve death. We won't know unless we try. you are suggesting is not only illegal, it is immoral. What's happened to you? Yes. That's the combination. Yes, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, described by the original screenwriter Frank Darabont as the best script he's ever written and the worst movie he's ever seen. I was going to re-watch this movie in preparation for this. We've got it for two weeks, so I may try and squeeze it in before we record episode 10, because it's on Netflix. So I was going to watch it like while I was editing, I think, the Donkey Kong Country episode. But then I was like, no, no, no. I haven't seen this movie since the early aughts. So I'm going to, I want to properly sit down and watch this. And I suggested to my wife, hey, 
do you want to watch Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? It was made in the 90s. You and I love things that were made in the 90s. And she said, who directed it? And I said, it's Kenneth Branagh and it's Robert De Niro as the monster. And she was like, I'm out. And I was like, yeah, I'll be honest with you, from my memory of it, it looks great, but it's absolutely bobbins. Yeah, and it, it's bobbins, but it's also considered one of the most faithful adaptations of the original novel. And you mentioned Branagh and you mentioned Bobby De Niro. It also stars Kenneth Branagh because, hey, you know what? If he's there, you may as well use him. And it also features, hey, a gothic horror. You've got to get Helena Bonham Carter in. Also, Ian Holm. Also, John Cleese. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like British stars within this, like TV stars that are in this. Because I think like Hugh Bonneville's in the movie, and like there's like a lot of like British names that you see throughout the cast list. And not only were there a lot of British names, but it also got its world premiere at the London Film Festival. It very much acknowledged its British roots in the story. And I guess in some ways, whilst a very faithful adaptation, in my head, it kind of draws a parallel to Hammer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because you think there was a period of time when you think of gothic horror, when you think of Frankenstein, Dracula, you don't necessarily think of Universal. You think of the Hammer canon. Yeah. That's the Hammer canon of films, not canon films. Or, or, or a canon that's throwing out hammers. No, that's Mario. <laughs> yeah. I think that Hammer and Universal are like the two icons of these characters, right? They're like, you know, they're, they're, they're free characters for everyone to use. But I think the Universal, because Universal owned the rights to that look. So like that green Frankenstein face with like the bolts and everything like that is owned by Universal. So mm. the board game Horrified, which is a fantastic board game, by the way, is like that's licensed by Universal. So Universal, like the, the forefathers of these characters of the monster, Dracula, creature, and all that sort of stuff. And I think that Hammer are the other side of that coin, right? Like that is the other classics of Dracula, the monster, this, that, and the other. What I find interesting in these two movies is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula, both done by Columbia, produced by Francis Ford Coppola. Like it is, it's like a different pocket universe of these and like different interpretations of these characters so i've always been really interested by them and while i don't think bram stoker's dracula has never truly landed for me no matter how many times i've watched it i don't think i've ever given mary shelley's frankenstein the same uh courtesy so yeah i i do think it'll be a really fun rewatch it will also be interesting to see how kenneth branner handles this one because some of his stuff he's directed i've really liked I really liked the first Thor movie. Mm -hmm. I thought that if you're going to do Thor, if you're going to do magic in the Marvel Universe, that movie was probably about as good as you were going to do. You don't want to leap straight in with Doctor Strange. You need no. to build up to that. And someone as likeable as that version of Thor is the way to do it. And I thought Branagh gave it some gravitas. He brought some of that kind of Shakespearean weight. Yeah. But this is much earlier in his directorial career. And there's one quote I've got on my notes from one of the reviews, which just says, Branner is in over his head. <laughs> he displays neither the technical finesse to handle a big, visually ambitious film, nor the insight to develop a stirring new version of this story. Yeah. Well, there's foreboding. I'm looking forward to re-watching this now. Also, Bobby De Niro is the monster. Like, oh, that's, that's Al Pacino. That's, that's Pacino. Pacino would have made an amazing monster. <laughs> Chucking the small girl into the lake with a hooah, hooah, I'm alive again. Do we have anything else to say about Baby Come Back, really? I don't at this point. What about you? 
Not a thing. It's a jaunty little ditty. I will say this feels like it should have been a summer hit, not a November hit. It feels weird that we are this late into the year. Like we're inching towards our Christmas number one periods. And this is very much like the the now, this is not a now Christmas album release. This is a now summer album release. And I don't think it occurred to me how old this was when we first recorded an episode where it was number one, because it's July when we're recording this. And so my brain went, oh, this is a good summer number one, except it's not. A couple of other news notes to talk about. November 10th not only saw the release of FIFA 95 on the Mega Drive to go top of the console charts, but also the debut on BBC One of The Vicar of Dibley. The village of Dibley needs a new vicar. I have, of course, asked the bishop for someone a little younger than the Reverend Pottle. Then I think it would be hard to find anyone older without actually recruiting a member of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> they didn't quite get what they expect. Hello. You were expecting a bloke? Beard, Bible, bad But then neither does she. Very unusual sandwiches. What's this with a ham? Lemon curd. The Vicar of Dibley, Thursday, 10th of November on BBC One. Um, you can call me Alice. Right. Because it's my name. <laughs> I used to love The Vicar of Dibley. I think it jumped the shark at some point and I couldn't tell you exactly when, but I definitely drifted away from it. And it could have been that shark jumping moment. It could have also just been, it is very saccharine primetime sitcom yeah and you know i was a teenager luke i wanted my comedy to be edgier i was looking less towards vicar Dibley and more towards sean's show on channel four yeah the fact that like you know bottoms on the other channel oh yeah do do what do i do i want pratt falling dawn french you know who was very very good in the show or do i want rick mail being repeatedly kicked in the crotch for half an hour i mean there's no choice pretty much uh, and lastly, November 11th, the BBC apologises after CFAX Teletext Service mistakenly reports the death of the Queen Mother. The item, described as a rehearsal script, was on screen for 30 seconds before being removed. Tis, 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 BBC. I, I, don't, I don't know what Games Master's like, network was putting up on CFAX, but apparently it couldn't have been any worse than that. Uh, have we got anything in the magazines that we want to jump into? The magazine, by the way, is going to come up later in this episode when we get to the Micro Machines 2 review, I guess. Well, just a quick news article to see us through until then. Do you remember Rise of the Robots, Luke? Unfortunately, I do. Uh, that will be seared into our memories and this podcast timeline until this show comes to an end. I'm pretty sure we'll be bringing up Rise of the Robots when we get to like the end of Series 7. Well, I've got bad news for little Luke because the oh, Mega no. Drive version of Rise of the Robots has been delayed well into next year. Darn it. That's a real shame. It was originally planned that all versions would be released simultaneously worldwide, but it now seems as though versions will be drip-fed onto the market. Sega's versions will not appear until the summer of 1995, while the SNES version has been signed up by acclaim for distribution and will be released in time for Christmas. So Rise of the Robots and the Mega Drive will be going head-to-head -head with the Sega Saturn UK release loop. <laughs> and people wonder, God, why did Sega bollocks up the mid-90s? The good ship Games Master. We're hoisting the fun flag over the crow's nest and setting sail for jolly, jolly land. It's it's always great when Dom does these intros, which are about like these sort of very happy things, and he is as droll and as like I don't want to use the word miserable because he's not miserable, but it's like you know the the flat uh, performance that he's giving purposefully so. 
it just makes it all the better, particularly with all the stuff that the goblins are doing around him. Yeah, he's not Jack Ding it. He's not deliberately being kind of like sulky faced, but he is kind of just being apathetic about it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. I mean, he's in hell, for God's sake. Let's get into our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My first challenge of the day is on Return of the Jedi on the Super Nintendo. Contestants have 45 seconds each to collect as many points as they can, using their lightsabers to discipline any unruly creatures along the way. May the Force be with you. This is a bit fun because we had Empire Strikes Back back in the uh, team championships. So it's nice to get the sequel on for this, Super Return of the Jedi on the Super Nintendo. It's also a nice, simple first challenge. Highest score, 45 seconds. Compare that to the Echo the Dolphin triathlon Krypton factor endurance test. Nice, short, sharp. Not a huge amount to say about Super Return of the Jedi that we couldn't have also just applied to Super Star Wars and Super Empire Strikes Back. It came out in June 94 in America, didn't come out in the UK until March of 1995, so we're definitely playing a US import or pre-production board. Also saw ports for the Game Boy and the Game Gear, and of course has been re-released multiple times and is available in a collection with the other Star Wars games. They're great fun, they're really lovingly produced, runny, jumpy, shooty platformers. Jazz Rignall probably hates them. Maybe he'd make an exception for these ones because they are exceptionally well done. I think we've now had the entire trilogy featured on this show as well. Certainly we had Super Star Wars in the consultation zone. I think we had it reviewed as well, I seem to recall. So uh, that's quite nice, actually, when it's kind of like look back on this as a, as a timeline perspective. Thing. We have had all three games. We have had all three games, although I think this series of games is the first time you actually get to play a Star Wars game as an Ewok. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because this game, in addition to your Lukes, your Hands, your Chewies, your Layers, you get to be Wicket. Yup nub. <laughs> Interestingly, this game, along with Empire, would actually get a re-release on the SNES when it was re-released in 1997 to coincide with the first special editions that came oh, out. They didn't yeah. re-release Super Star Wars, but clearly someone woke up to the amount of business that it was doing and went, hey, they're doing Empire and Jedi next year. We've got... Empire and Jedi games, let's rebox them, rebatch them, and shove them out there. There was no difference. There was no added content. There was no deleted scenes. There was no missing levels. It was just a moneymaker. Dude, I cannot wait to reach that in our timeline as well. Those Star Wars re releases, all the new scenes that were added in, like that Jabba the Hutt scene that was cut from the from the first movie being reinserted with Jabba digitally added into it and then having to work out how to make Han Solo step over him and all that sort of stuff. Oh man, I watched the shit out of those VHS releases. I've actually got a set of those VHS releases now, so I can still go back to those original special editions in the cardboard uh, case the gold one pulls out makes a little fart noise every time you open it or the silver one because i was a widescreen boy i didn't have a widescreen tv but i had already learned to appreciate the letterboxing we got the full screen one um because a friend of ours down the road got the widescreen one so we decided that we would get the full screen one so we could watch both versions yeah okay that makes sense so may the force be with goldie nagpal and richard denton goldie are you a big star wars fan no not at all um, who's your least favourite character in the films? Probably the princess. What, what don't you like about the princess? She's in her hair, it's right around her ears. Is that those old Cornish pasties on the thing? It's a bit silly. Okay, well, uh, hopefully, Richard, you'll be a big Star Wars fan, yes? No. This is one of the most formative experiences of my childhood you're talking about, Richard. What don't you like about it? It's all plastic. 
Now that's just Mark Hamill in the lead role. I think you're fine. Dominic Diamond seems genuinely perturbed by these players because Dominic Diamond is a child of the 70s, so he would have grown up with these movies. He's now talking to kids of the 90s to whom Star Wars is this lame thing. So they're asking him about Star Wars. It's not cool to like Star Wars at this point, let's be honest with you. Like it, That's not going to become a cool thing until, I don't know, 2015 maybe is very much not a cool thing to be a star wars fan in i don't know i wouldn't even say with the prequels because no one liked the prequels not even fans like the prequels no i think the special editions mate tazos the tazos yeah the tazos did kind of make it a bit of a mainstream thing yeah and the action figures the action figures came back big time also nintendo 64 time we had shadows of the empire which was a big multi-format deal I actually got the book of that recently. I saw it in Ooh, a charity nice. shop and I, I grabbed that hardback as well. But I still think it's not a cool thing to be uh, to be uh, into Star Wars, particularly not in 1994. And these kids are not into Star Wars in 1994. And like Dominic's asking about like, are you a fan of Star Wars? No. What do you like about it? Leia's dumb. Yeah, he's got stupid hair. And then he asks the other fella as well, Richard, if you don't like it either. And then he just goes like, guys, this is a, a formative part of my childhood. Like, give me something. Yeah. What don't you like about it, Richard? It's all plastic. Kids these days. It's such a bollocks line as well, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to soapbox on this one, but just to go, it's all plastic. Mate, you're about to sit down in front of a television, which guess what? Apart from the glass screen, that outer case is made of plastic. You're going to sit in front of a Super Nintendo. Guess what that's made of? Yeah, it's made of plastic. You're going to hold a controller, a casing of that. What's that? It's plastic. I bet you he was wearing at least three items on his body also made of plastic. Star Wars isn't all plastic. You're all plastic. And let's stop dogging on Mark Hamill, who is this episode's target. Dominic doesn't <laughs> seem to like Mark Hamill. Well, I think the the reason why he goes after Mark Hamill, because we had this a couple of episodes ago when he was featured in the news about Wing Commander 3, was, you know, oh, look, it's that guy who was in that Star Wars movie once. I think that Mark Hamill had a reputation at this point of just being like, it was Star Wars and that was it which is what actually Harrison Ford was afraid of. Harrison Ford would be afraid he'd only ever be known for Star Wars, which is why he wanted to be killed off in the second movie. So I think that that's why, like, I think it's a, it's very much of its time to make fun of Mark Hamill for not doing any work because I don't think many people really knew that he was doing a lot of voice work and he was doing things like Bonkers, Batman, the animated series. Like, we know that now through the power of the internet and sort of like nostalgia and stuff. I think at the time it was just like, yeah, Mark Hamill, he did Star Wars, and then did a load of director DVD movies, and they were all cack. Hey, I liked the Giver. <laughs> well, I mean, I liked it too. But I think the the perception of Mark Hamill was he just did a load of cack movies. Yeah, maybe. I I I would be the person that would go out there and say that for all the Skywalker love, I think Mark Hamill's most iconic role is the Joker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd certainly say so now. I think for our generation, I think that a lot of people warmed him more. Like, you know, there's a reason why he's still doing great voice work now. And like people ask him to do that Joker voice. People will go to bat. He is the best Joker. Kevin Conroy was the best Batman and he was the best Joker. First up, they're mighty. They morph like mental and they support Rangers. They're mighty morphing Power Rangers and they're tipped to be the biggest selling consumer cash-in this Christmas. Although their Super NES game is only at number 19 in the charts and the Game Boy version is easily the worst piece of plastic since the Sinclair C5.
hey, those trading cards that you can get as part of our $10 backing uh, over on Patreon, they, they will come in handy now. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is here. It's set to be the biggest selling thing this Christmas. They weren't wrong either because Crikey Power Rangers blew up in 94 and into 95. This is a show that was literally decades in the making. Mm-hmm. If you go back and you look at this, this wasn't the first time someone tried to take the Japanese Sentai series and adapt it for a Western world. Stan Lee tried it, Marvel tried it, and then Saban got it, found a way to recycle the footage with new filmed in America footage. Well, now now it's filmed in Australia, mostly. That Yeah, it's, it's probably cheaper to do it that way. But yeah, took footage from the original Japanese series, mainly took the suit work and the monster work, mixed it in with newly shot footage with fresh-faced American teens, boom, dubbing, mighty morphing Power Rangers, and away you go. This was the first series and was originally taken from the Sentai Zayu Ranger series, which was around uh, 92, 93, so it wasn't actually that old. We got plenty of Power Rangers fans as part of the Under Console Nation, I'm sure, There'll be plenty of discourse on this. And who knows, maybe we will cover Power Rangers for a bonus episode at a later date as part of the uh, the Under Consultation bonus podcast. I'd certainly be up for that. I'd be up for it as well. Like I, I've rewatched Power Rangers in my lifetime. Um, I, I mean, I was huge into Power Rangers when I was a kid, massively into this show. But I also was the child of a parent who was terrified by the show. This is a show that was written a lot about in our right-wing media that we have here in the UK of like, it's a dangerous show for kids to watch. Kids are imitating it. Kids are falling out of buildings because they watch the Power Rangers jumping out of windows because they watch the Power Rangers. My mum was genuinely terrified about me watching this show because I would go out and imitate it. So I never had the toys. Never had the toys. Never had the games. I was categorically told I was never going to go and watch the movie. And probably in hindsight, I think my parents got a bit of a lucky break there because the movie is a bit shit. I was allowed to watch the show, but on the proviso that I promised that I didn't do anything reckless or I wouldn't be pressured into doing something reckless by other kids that were watching it. Oh, the moral outrage of the right-wing media. It's video nasties, it's Ninja Turtles, it's nunchucks being banned. Mary Whitehouse all over again. It's also total bobbins. Absolute bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Saturday morning, that theme tune kicks in. Still one of the my favorite theme tunes of all time. It's an, a rocking bit of music. The games, I mean, like, you know, Dominic Time makes just in this news piece here that the video games aren't really charting that well and the Game Boy 1 is about as bad as the Sinclair C5. And yeah, a lot of the material that came out around Power Rangers wasn't great, but I absolutely adored the show. It, it, it doesn't hold up well. It holds up well when you have your nostalgia goggles firmly on your on the bridge of your nose, but just watching it fresh like it is, it's not a good show. But at the same time, it's a great show. Like some shows we've discussed, it doesn't hold up to bulk viewing. Although, I will give them credit, there are story arcs. It's not just a case of 20 minutes and then everyone's laughing and over because you've got the story of Tommy. Gotta say, the Green Ranger saga. Oh, that five-part... Oh, mate, what a five weeks that was. Crikey. It was that was incredible. And I've actually got a soft spot for the 95 movie. The CGI is wonky as hell. But you want to talk about kind of comic book villains. Ivan Ooze yeah. is a great comic book villain. 
when uh, when we reach that in our timeline, I'm going to have to dig it out because I've got interviews that I did. I wrote an article for like the 20th anniversary, I think, for the website I was I was working for. I I did interviews with like the cast and like director and the writers and things oh, like mate. that. So I, I'm, I'm going to see. I don't know if I've still got all the audio for it, but I think I've got them written down somewhere. So I'm going to try and dig all those out. Hey, it's only next year in our timeline. Oh, God, yeah, you're right. It, is. it comes round quick, doesn't it? Like the, the Power Rangers boom, in my mind's eye, it was a couple of years. Really, it was, what, 18 months? Maybe two years at most? I mean, it premiered in August 1993. So it's okay. been around in the world for a year. But of course, we got the transatlantic lag. It was just yeah, beginning yeah, yeah. to become the big thing here. But there wasn't nearly as much of a delay between the movie being released in America and the movie being released over here. There probably still was a delay, but, you know, things were going on. The one thing I did love in the movie, I loved the first Western iteration of the suits. I thought they looked really cool. They were kind of the biker leathers and they had the lights, the headlights in the helmet. Yeah. Yeah, we got to cover some Power Rangers on this. I'm sure, I'm sure, Bruce I think that will be as popular with us as it will be with people listening because that will be a fun old time. I think so. Once upon a time, Mr. Sega had a plan. By linking up with Mr. AT&T, they would give Sega stalwarts a chance to play games head-to-head down the phone lines. It was called Edge 16 and had specially written technology. It was a great idea, but uh, it's been cancelled, possibly because of cheesy advert ideas like this. I'm a marketing specialist from AT&T Consumer Products. How would you like to play a video game over the phone while talking at the same time? It's something that you and I have talked about on this show before when we were talking about the review of Balls. The Edge 16, this was Sega's foray into online gaming, the partnering with AT&T. Only AT&T then decided, ah, we don't really fancy doing that. Um, and that's kind of what this news piece here is. It's about AT&T pulling out of the deal. This thing was ready to go September 1994. It was entering production when AT&T just went, eh, bored now. Yeah. Although, like, I love Dominic talking about the cringy commercials and, like, promo videos that they've got for it. And they show a clip, you've just heard, you know, some audio from it. If you haven't seen the video version of it, it's so much worse than the audio could ever possibly. The combination of the of the audio and visual is so cringy. It's like someone saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and saw the way Rufus interacted with Bill and Ted and went, we want that, but can we do it with a lady that has zero charisma and a child that desperately wants to be anywhere but on this set. Yeah, it was missing Josh Wolf. is really what it was missing. Josh Wolf should have been all over this, but he was busy going bananas. <laughs> Very nice. If you know a sad, dull family of passive TV punters, you can eradicate their ennui with the two-way TV, which lets you interact with your fave TV shows. F is a drink made with beer and lemonade. No, you pellet, it's shandy, not soda. As well as bopping with Bob, you can call up stats when you're watching the footy and get all anoraki. You need this box and a phone socket. Plus, you get the free plastic 3D map of Britain. The system's on trial now with a possible 95 release. Speaking of interactive TV, this is a, a cool little functionality, isn't it? Two-way TV. I, I, I did some reading up onto this, and I found like a couple of found like a Birmingham local newspaper that's talking about it coming out there in 1995 and it is essentially a way for you to like play along with game shows so they, they show you the clip of um a blockbuster in the audio that you've just heard then but i think it was like what i was reading it was like 50 episodes of 30 shows 
were going to be available to like interact with like every single week. Yeah, I mean, the information I found said that it was in 3,000 homes in the Midlands. Yes. That was dated from like 1997. So that may have been a later iteration. This technology stuck around for a while. It, it didn't just disappear, but apparently the average usage in those homes was 10 hours per week with an average of 14 different games being played. Yeah. 10 hours doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider the limited amount of programming it would be available on, it does mean that those people that had it were deliberately tuning into shows just to play this. Mm, yeah. And this was verified by the bar viewing figures that showed that in those areas, shows that were compatible with the two-way TV saw viewing figures increase by 70%. Huh. So I guess the reason why this thing didn't really take off as much, because I did find like a news article, I think from The Guardian, that talked about how the company went into financial troubles and like they were like laying off staff left, right and center. I guess it was just the technology worked, provably worked in the homes that it was in, you know, in terms of increasing figures. They just didn't have the money and the capital to really take it off. Now, before we get all Jedi'd up, let's have a few pearls of wisdom from Steve Merritt from Mean Machine. Steve, why is it that Mark Hamill can't get any other work? Well, he was slated to play Jeffrey in Spielberg's version of Rainbow the movie, but unfortunately, just never came off, and it all went downhill from there. <laughs> how much? How many uh, of these Jedi juice pills do you think an average player will be able to get? I'd say twenty-five to thirty. 25. Mind you've only got 45 seconds anyway. So when they cut back to Dom and Steve from Me Machines and they just start burying Mark Hamilton more, I wrote in my notes in all caps, he's in Wing Commander, you pricks. Leave him alone. Yeah, we do get a fun little reference to Rainbow <laughs> the movie, which I just love as a concept and I wish we'd actually got. And also, I do love that they're referring to the little icons that they need to collect as <laughs> Jedi juice pills. That is very good. But unfortunately, what we get here for this first challenge, 45 seconds to get the most of these coins as possible. It feels very team challenge because it's the 45 second thing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's as many X amount as possible, like a proper platform challenge from the team championship era. But what we have here are two lads who clearly don't like this game that much. and just play it pretty badly and to the point where like dominic and steve are like on commentary being like this is not good at all like this is, is very bad they're not doing good like right at the start goldie misses one and then steve said if you go left there's a massive bonus like you could have got absolutely loads of them off there and then he just misses some more he falls down a chasm gets stuck gets about 13 in total and that and that's it it was really poor I could have been playing Samurai Showdown. They've got to be playing this Star Wars thing with the stupid hair and everything's plastic. Or it's a case of they are from the acting school and aren't actually that interested in playing games. I, I don't know. I think the level of disinterest here is we turned up. I mean, they could still be from the acting school, but we turned up, we expected to play games. We don't like Star Wars. This is not what we want to play. We want to be doing Street Fighter. We want to be doing Mortal Kombat. We want to do World Heroes, Samurai Showdown. 100%. We want to do something cool. Or even FIFA or something like that. Road Rash on the 3DO. Yeah, totally. But they don't want to be playing this game. And I think you can see that with Richard up next. Because Richard also doesn't go left. And Steve is like bewildered by this. You mentioned this on an episode, a previous episode that we did that like the other players should be like, you know, shielding their eyes or turning away from the screens so they can't see like all the hints and tips that the other ones go and pick up on their mistakes. Richard literally saw Goldie make that mistake, heard Steve talk about it, and then actively chose not to do it. 
Yeah, Dom's comment of the Helen Keller school of listening is like, ooh, <laughs> yeah. but also true. Very true, yeah. I can't believe he's gone right. You told him about the bonus bits. I know, I know. I was talking to myself. The Helen Keller school of listening. Honestly, with 19 seconds left, he only needs five more of these Jedi juice pills to win. And even then, he does this with like seconds to spare because he spends the next 15 or so seconds half assing around. He doesn't deserve to win this. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I know Goldie was bad, but he wasn't much better. Goldie, bad luck. Um, at what point did the force desert you? Probably at the end when I went the wrong way. Yeah, not, not really advisable, is it, is it Goldie? Richard, uh, I didn't think you were going to do it, actually. It were, uh, towards the end, it was getting a, a little bit hairy. What was the difference in the end? I slapped the force. You certainly did. And we get into the post-match. And Goldie, clearly, despite not liking Star Wars, knows at least a couple of jokes that he can make because he's like, oh, I think the Force deserted me when I went the wrong way. Although Richard's line did make me laugh where he thinks he won because he slapped the Force. Do you remember when we had Bad Boys Inc. back in Series 3 and they played the Star Wars game? And like they were, they clearly weren't Star Wars fans either, but they were like, you know, mentioning the Force because it's so cool to, like, to look, particularly look back at this time. Star Wars is not a cool thing, but people know what the Force is. It's like you've never seen an episode of The Twilight Zone, but you know what that theme tune means. These two kids may never have seen Star Wars in their lives, but the Force is just part of like pop culture lexicon. Like a pepper pot being a Dalek. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, Or totally. Star Trek, beam me up Scotty. I know the Dalek voice. I've never seen an episode of Doctor Who in my life. But like, even in the 90s, I knew what the Dalek voice was. Gotta find a way to work this into <laughs> <under> consultation <laughs> to actually get you to watch a good episode of Doctor Who. Not trying to convert you, just trying to show you that it wasn't all bobbins. Oh, I'd probably love it. I reckon if I watched Old Who, I'd probably think it was wicked. Yeah, actually, because you are not someone that has to be wowed by top-of-the-range special effects. Oh, yeah, totally. But Richard gets the golden joystick. I don't think either of them really deserved it. No, that was a bad opening challenge. But it was fun to talk about. <laughs> well, that's the thing with this podcast, is that sometimes this show isn't that good. But us talking about it's really fun. So I end up giving it 92%. <laughs> We're just easily swayed by how entertaining we are to ourselves. First up, after all the hype, is Donkey Kong Country the next generation or just another dull platformer? The first thing that's going to hit you about Donkey Kong Country is, of course, the graphics, and they are stupendous. It's all been done on silicon graphics workstations, so all the sprites are really nicely rounded and ray-traced characters. There are various methods of transportation which Diddy Kong and Donkey Kong can get around with. There's Rambi the Rhino, which um, he goes around batting them with his horn. And there's also On Guard the Swordfish on the underwater level. It's very good, and I'm sure it's going to do very well this Christmas. Graphics, as you can see, are fantastic. The music, too, is brilliant, and it's a very, very big game. The only problem is it's very, very easy. You will finish it on day one or day two. Here we are. We had our Donkey Kong Country special a few episodes back. Now it's being reviewed here. And really, the only comment that really sticks out to me is the one that Frank O'Connor makes. And I mentioned it back in, I think, the Donkey Kong Country exposed VHS uh, episode that we did, which is where he said, the only thing is, it's quite easy and you'll finish it in a day or two. I think if you've dedicated a day or two to completing it, then maybe. But 
Some of those later levels are really nails. I did some research on this, and by that I mean when I had time off last week, I sat on the sofa with my Nintendo Switch and the SNES channel, and I completed Donkey Kong Country in a day or two. Did you really? <laughs> yes, yes I did. I didn't 100% it, mm. but I completed the main game, and I completed the story, and I didn't completely rely on the rewind feature, but with the save game, I'd have still completed it. Yeah, yeah. I actually take back some of my comments because I was with you thinking this game was really hard. And maybe at the time when I first got it, it was. But apparently me of the now didn't struggle so much with it. And in fact, most of the time when I did struggle, it was just down to landing on a platform and just being a bit too close to the edge. So mm. the kind of the physics engine just carried you over and you slipped off and stuff like that. I actually don't think died from enemy impact i died from pitfalls mm. what always brings to mind for me is the minecart stuff and you've got to have like your lightning quick reactions to not cock that up but it gets 90 percent here which is also a score as well that i think is it was not as high as i was expecting it to be especially given the amount of kind of promotion and heavy lifting they gave it but then again We've had this before where the PR machine doesn't necessarily match up with what the reviews say. I mean, the magazine looked upon it much more favourably. They gave the graphics 98%. Well earned. Sound, 93%. Fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. great soundtrack. Gameplay, 92. This is this is high now. Lifespan, 90. Which they say, even after you finish the game, you'll come back to hunt out the secret levels, which is fair because there are a lot of them. Mm -hmm. What do you reckon the overall was? I'm saying 93 95. Oh, okay. Because my other, my actually, my instinct was to say 94. So I and, I and I corrected myself to go lower. So that's okay. So they were much more favorable in the magazine then. So I just grabbed my uh, Nintendo Switch just to wrap up this review and I checked what my save file said. My save file says that I have completed 51% of the game. So that's the main story, but there's still a considerable amount of secret levels to go. The time, one hour, 59 minutes. So that's like total playtime? Yes. Well, okay, that's pretty good. One hour, 59 minutes. Speed running through it is probably like something like five minutes. So the current speed running record of like any percent is, yeah, seven minutes, 30 seconds. All stages is half an hour, 31 minutes, basically. Basically, I'm just a filthy casual, but was able to complete it in a couple of days. Two hours, I think is pretty good. That's pretty good timing. I think if I get a couple of days off, I would like to give this a try because I haven't had a proper like sit down and play of it. I've only done it in like the office on my lunch breaks and stuff. You've got like half an hour or so or like you know, maybe 10 minutes at most. You get a couple of levels in you. I wonder if I get in sit, sit down and I get into a flow of things that that might help me, uh, you know, and like you, maybe I'll finish it in a day or so, or maybe I'm still shit at it and I still will never finish it. To be honest, it's worth a try. And the one thing I did find a lot easier now was the barrel timings when you have to shoot yourself between different moving barrels. That one, for some reason, possibly years of Guitar Hero and Rock Band, I just went boom, boom, boom. And I actually saved a couple of video clips of me just nailing them first time <laughs> because I'm like, oh, this is a lot easier. I like that guy in uh, the Donkey Kong Country VHS one, like that QA tester. And you get yourself some free guys. Exactly. Yeah. I got myself some extra guys. <laughs> Next up, the game that scored 100% playability in Games Master Magazine, Micro Machines 2. Gentlemen, start your engines. Micro Machines 2 is here and there's more room to madness as you race around tiny surfaces with your tiny cars. Micro Machines 2 from Codemasters is not only a fantastic four-player racing game, you won't even have to buy a multi-tap to play it. It has two extra joypad ports built into the cartridge. 
In terms of actually updating Micro Machines 1, really it's just the extra players that add to it, and of course the new tracks. The fact that you can get more people playing Micro Machines is always a good thing. I think for Micro Machines 2, we want to head straight into the Games Master magazine for this one because Dominic Diamonds says at the top of this that it got 100% playability in the magazine and it scores 92% here. But based on that comment from Dom at the top of this, I'm willing to bet that the magazine gave it a mahoosive score. Oh, it may be the highest score we have yet to see in this magazine when we've been referring to reviews. So he's absolutely right. Gameplay, 100. To the point where they've actually had to extend the box out because normally that <laughs> box only has two digits in it. Yeah. And they've had to do a bit of copying and pasting there that you can see they've just actually stretched it horizontally. But it says 100. Graphics, 80. Which is fair. It's not much of an upgrade from the original. Sound, 82. It's just... That's my excellent Micro Machines impersonation that I didn't even know I had. Lifespan, 99. Now, I wonder what stopped them from giving it 100. Actually, I can tell you by the comment. This would last forever, but you can bet they'll beat it with a version 3. They sort of did because, like, 96 adds in the track editor, which is available on the DOS version of, of Micro Machines 2. So I think the 96 one is essentially like, it's it's the good, it's the complete version of Micro Machines 2. That's what would have given it that extra 1%. But the overall says, this game is uplifting, a joy. Just look at that score. That's as high as I've ever gone. Codemasters are giving me a lot of money for this. No, just kidding. I was. Don't look at me like that. Oh dear. But this is saying this is the highest score he's ever gone. Luke, we've got 80, 82, 199. What do you think the overall score is? I can't believe that I didn't think about doing this beforehand. Or even, like, we literally sat down here and I suddenly thought, like, hang on, I think I already know what this answer is. And in my head, it is either 96 or 98. I'm leaning towards 98. And the reason why is because I'm pretty sure it's on the front cover of the game. Well, if it's on the front cover of the game... It's wrong. And amazingly, you chose two numbers, 96 and 98. It's the one in the middle you didn't choose. Ah. It was 97%. I've got it right here. Yep, there it is. In fact, if I pull it out here, I can lift it up to the screen and not drop my laptop down. 97% there on the front cover, accredited to Games Master Magazine. And it says, probably the most playable game in the whole world. 97% overall rating, Games Master Magazine UK. Yeah, and the uh, the exact quote that they put on the cover there is from the gameplay rating, which got a hundred. That, that that completely makes sense. I mean, like this is it's it's very much a British game. The 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 Americans didn't get this on the Genesis. We only we, they got a, the DOS version. The, we uh, was we got the the full Mega Drive complete version. And it's also something that we're going to talk about again at some point soon when we return to Bad Influence because it's the video game debut for one Violet Berlin. Indeedy do it is. There was one quote I did want to read out from Violet Berlin because Codemasters asked Violet Berlin to be in the game and she said, and this is a quote from an interview she did with Arcade Attack, saying, Codemasters rang up, asked if I would do it. I said yes on the proviso that my character would be the fastest AI-controlled character in the game. 
I didn't want to be that person that always comes last like Donkey Kong in Mario Kart. They said, okay, I can be the fastest female character of the game only because Spider was the fastest overall. Well, having played Micro Machines 1, I was familiar with this tradition, so I conceded. Of course, I had no way of knowing how truly awesome Micro Machines 2 would turn out to be. So great not to just be in the game, but to say a truly awesome game that brought new dimensions to multiplayer. And the other quote I wanted to read is because Arcade Attack also interviewed Andy Crane and asked him, would, you know, Violet, your co-host got to be in the game, what about you? They asked, did you ever get the opportunity to put yourself into a video game and did it upset you that Violet Blim was in Micro Machines? And he just responded, no and no. My mind was just blown that they got to speak to him and then you get a response like that. And I'm thinking, well, maybe we dodged a bullet there. <laughs> Andy Crane did not care about those games. I do just also want to say, as you mentioned, Arcade Attack, welcome back, Arcade Attack. As we're recording this, they've just dropped their first episode back after a hiatus. We've pinged a few messages back and forth on Twitter. Uh, they're local lads to me. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I literally know where their local Domino's is now, although I still argue as to whether it is in the centre of Croydon. <laughs> but we're not going to talk too much more about Micro Machines 2 at this point, because you mentioned Bad Influence and you mentioned Violet Berlin. And whilst we don't have an exact time frame for it at the moment, this is an entire subject we are going to revisit in a bonus episode down the line. So stay tuned for that one. Finally, in my opinion, FIFA 3 do is the most exciting football game ever, but are our reviewers playing on my team? It has multiple camera angles. It actually looks like you're watching a real game of football at some moments. However, the game itself isn't as fluid and slick as the original FIFA on Mega Drive. We've seen FIFA suffer on the Mega Drive and on the SNES, but really, you couldn't have done anything like this on either of those consoles. This is really a next-generation game, and I think it's going to be the one that really sells the 3DO over here. And our final game here, FIFA on the 3DO, which we had featured a couple of weeks back as part of the, the finals of the FIFA tournament, which is, you know, I think we said it at the time then, that was clearly a Dominic Diamond decision because he opens this up saying, this is the most exciting football game ever made. But I think that our reviewers here are not quite as high on it as Dominic Diamond is. This is almost the season four equivalent of these will be the best graphics you have ever seen. Yeah. This is the CDI tennis game for series four. But I am actually leaning more towards Dom on this one than I am the reviewers because this game is groundbreaking for the FIFA franchise, which is still very young at this point. But also it's giving us a proper 3D football game i say proper 3d because the players are still sprites but the way the camera moves the way the game moves it's it's a step up it's a massive step up from where we've been literally six months previously in fact really the only thing that holds fifa on the 3do back i think frank o'connor says it it's not as fluid as the mega drive game it's too flashy almost for its not for its own good but because it looks so impressive the gameplay just doesn't quite match it and it's not quite there at this point i do remember that with kind of early 3d sports games there was this habit of we've got multiple camera angles now we are going to ping that camera around like an arsehole and it will be quite disorientating if you look at how fifa behaves now fifa it zooms in a bit it zooms out a bit you get some fancy angles on the replay but for the most part it plays with a relatively fixed camera angle it doesn't do anything too flashy in the middle of the game that was an important lesson they learned 
as time went on, and I think a lot of other sports games have done similar. Well, I'd like to avoid an early bath, so let's get into our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Contestants on my second challenge will be scumming down, lining out, and generally trying to avoid an early bath as we play the new sports game from the makers of FIFA Soccer, EA Rugby. National pride is at stake here, as our two players will be playing as tacit rivals, England and Wales. Now, they just call it EA Rugby here because at this point, it doesn't actually have a name. It's Rugby World Cup 95, and this is cool because this is an early build that they've been given by Electronic Arts. And if you haven't watched the episode, if you haven't seen Rugby World Cup 95, it is FIFA, but with rugby. I mean, technically, that is exactly correct because this is the FIFA engine. Yeah. This was a reskin and they kind of changed the uh, vertical axis of the ball somewhat so it sticks up here rather than down there. It was not the first rugby game to be released, but it was certainly EA's first punt at the ball. And this is one of those occasions where I used to play rugby uh, as a teenager. It was one of the few sports I was actually good at. But despite that, I never really got into watching rugby. I liked playing it, but I didn't find it entertaining to watch. And the games kind of felt the same way to me. I didn't find anything too enjoyable because of the stop-start nature of it. It's the same with American football. It's very and off and go and off and go again. And so I found this challenge interesting and I found this game interesting, but at no point during it did I think... Ooh, I should pick this up and play this. I had the exact same thing because we've, we've had rugby challenges on this show in the past. We've had American football challenges on the show in the past as when we've said that there, which is it's not the most, I mean, to, to steal a, a line from Frank O'Connor, it's not the most fluid of gameplay as a as opposed to you, you know, watching FIFA, uh, a FIFA challenge or something like that or any other football challenge that they've done. It is kind of cool to see that because it looks exactly like FIFA and it is you know from a historical viewpoint on the show as well it is cool that they've got an early build of this like this is you know a build before this was Rugby World Cup 95 so that that's pretty cool in of itself but yeah the challenge was was pretty fun we'll get into it in just a moment the challenge was fun but it didn't make me think man I should go and play this game because I'm I'm not a rugby fan I have watched it it's just not really for me it's not really my cup of tea but in the same way I really like watching American football, but I haven't really enjoyed playing American football games. One of the things I love is, as you said, this is an early build and it did get the World Cup license and therefore featured all 20 teams that participated in that World Cup, albeit with fictional names. They got the rights to the teams, they didn't get the rights to the player names and identities. But whilst it may not be setting our world alight, it was relatively well received, depending on the platform. The PC version probably came in for the most criticism, but console to PC ports at this time, not the greatest thing in the world. The Mega Drive version was very well received. Me Machines gave it 90%. Next Generation gave it 3 out of 5, which I guess would put it in that 70% range. Not a bad entry for something that was one, first entry for EA, and two, a kind of hacky reskin. Now, today we have a reenactment of the climax to last season's Five Nations. So please welcome, uh, representing Wales and England, Rupert Moon and Debbie Morris. We'll start with you, Rupert. Let me take you back then to the beginning of the year, to that fateful day in Twickenham, Twickenham if I can pronounce it correctly. Uh, are we going to see some revenge from you today? Yeah, it's going to be sweet. Uh, we're going to get, I'm going to get my own back. It was a painful experience in Twickenham and I'm determined to put it all right now. Are we going to see a typical Welsh game from you? Yeah, we're going to be throwing it around and no kicking, of course. <laughs> and talking about uh, kicking, we're going to you then, Debbie. Now, 
We've got 15 players in each team. Presumably, you'd only be using 10? Exactly. If, uh, if that's the way to win a game, that's the way to win it, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, no, a lot, was, a lot was talked about. Obviously, England can't score tries. I think we showed a little bit with the Welsh game with uh, Rory getting a try. Yeah, so. yeah. And the thing is, England can't score tries. The problem is, Scotland can't score penalties either. It's national pride as we have a reenactment from the rugby super. World Cup. Uh, Rupert Moon and, and Dewey Morris are our players here. Uh, I'm going to assume, uh, based on the conversation that they have, that England won the game uh, that they are referring to. Uh, actually, no, England didn't win. Wales won. It was part of the 1993 Five Nations Championship, which I believe was actually won by France overall. Well, I can tell you exactly why I made that error. Like, rereading my notes back. It's because I assumed that Dewey Morris is the Welshman and that Rupert Moon is the Englishman in this conversation because Dewey Morris sounded very much like a Welsh name. And so I wrote in my notes here, Rupert is the English guy uh, and he's looking to get revenge for what happened at Twickenham. And then he said he's going to be playing a typically Welsh game. And I was like, oh, maybe I've got this wrong then. But I then didn't go back and correct my first set of notes because I often write these things out as a stream of consciousness as I'm watching the episode. So that what you've seen right there is literally a legit mistake I made because I had no Scooby-Doo who these lads were. Well, do you want to know Rupert's full name? It's an impressive one. Rupert Henry St. John Barker Moon. Oh, that's good. I do like Barker Moon because it makes me think of Ozzy Osbourne. Mm, Barker the Moon. <laughs> Let me tell you about a friend of mine um, who uh, I knew him when I was at university and when he got married to his, uh, his girlfriend, he took on her name uh, sort of like double barreled uh, her name with his because she was like the only other she was the last girl i think of of two sisters so they were like worried that the name was going to die out so he took on her surname along with his own so he went out to the courthouse to change his name from lee michael alp to lee michael alp casey but when he was there he realized he could change his middle name as well so he changed his name from lee michael alp to Lee Michael, Bruce Campbell, Lucha, Burt Reynolds, Alp Casey. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Isn't there just? I mean, in many ways, his new middle name reflects a lot of my tastes because Lucha, Bruce Campbell and Burt Reynolds, you've got Evil Dead Wrestling and Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, yeah. And at the wedding, he was the only one to get it wrong. Did people know before the wedding that he had changed his name? Oh, yeah, because he was very proudly telling people. <laughs> when he came back, he was like, guess what I did today? What did <laughs> his parents think? Us. They thought it was pretty funny. They thought it was pretty, yeah. Uh, they, they, they thought it was a very funny thing to do. I mean, any one of those three components would be a great new middle name to do all three. Oh, hats off. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but despite Rupert being a Welsh rugby player, he was actually born in Birmingham. So he was born in the West Midlands. And he kind of came from a bit of a family of rugby players, or certainly with his siblings, his elder brother, Richard Henry Quentin Barker Moon. Oh man, they have got a good dictionary of names. His elder sister, Estelle Annette Augusta Barker Moon. <laughs> I can't decide on any of these names, love. What should we do? All of them. Well, she played a scrum half for the Wasps Ladies. That is actually a very aggressive team name. It's like, oh, what are you called? Oh, we're the bees. Mm, we're the Wasps. Ooh. Yeah. We don't die if we sting you. No, we don't make honey. We just live to aggravate. But during his time with the Welsh national team, he earned 24 caps and actually made his debut at that aforementioned 1993 Five Nations Championships and retired from international rugby in 2001. Mm. Dewey Morris, on the other hand, played scrum half for England, but was 
born in Breconshire in Wales. Oh, so my, really, my notes initially weren't a million miles off, which is why he has a very Welsh sounding name. He made his debut before Rupert. He made his debut in like 1988 against Australia, was dropped in 1990, returned to England in 1992 and was then their scrum half in 1993 but retired much earlier. He retired from Rugby Union after the 1995 World Cup. So actually, this game would honour the last time he played in the World Cup Hmm. by the time he got its licence, although he wouldn't have his player name in it, so it wouldn't be much of a memento. Not really. But after retirement, he chose the very honourable path of becoming a television pundit. Um, (laughs) While we discuss the rather poor state of Scottish rugby, we'll take a short commercial break. The new Compact Presario is a home computer that has everything you need to run your own business, including a built-in answer phone and fax. It also comes with CD-ROM to bring interactive learning to your children and multimedia entertainment to you. The new Presario from Compact. Baby Bell, the little cheese that likes to get out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you'd like an information pack on the Volvo 850, call free on 0800 000 850. We're about to have a reenactment of the climax of last season's Five Nations. We've got our special guest, Ruben Moon from Wales and Debbie Morris of England. Playing Billy Bowman to my Nigel Starmer-Smith, we have Josh Wilson from Total. Josh, what tips have you got for our two guests? Right, well, this is a very, very special early version of the game that Electronic Arts has sent us. It's not entirely finished yet, so it's missing the stats. There's no tips to give on that. 
but what I would recommend is to go for a nice quick passing game get right. the ball moving about a lot so England in trouble but even before the whistle has gone you would say that wouldn't you okay being north of the border <laughs> coming back from the ad break and a returning face to games master Josh Bilson from Total Magazine uh, we haven't seen him since episode 19 of series 3 in the review zone actually where they were looking at Total Carnage on the Game Boy and a bit of a classic from that period of time Eternal Champions on the Mega Drive. A game we have talked about quite a bit in the past, mainly because it's hard as our souls. Yeah, it was all over their show at that period of time as well. But yeah, it's nice to see Joss Bilson back and actually in a commentary position, which I don't think we've had him in previously. But he is there to drop some facts about this game, stating that this is a very early build of the game, so there's going to be some features missing, i.e. there's bugs. We'll be lucky if we get through this challenge in one take. And I would be very curious to know actually how many takes it took them to get to a challenge with such an early build. Well, I have a feeling that that is going to come into play at the end of this challenge, because this challenge has a, not an abrupt ending, but certainly it just, it, it sort of ends on a bit of a whimper and it's just a lot of commentary kind of covering over the cracks. I mean, we've had some kind of development boards, we've had some prototypes, we've had some early versions. I would argue this is probably the earliest version that we've had of any game. Like, you know, Joss even says it hasn't even got stats. Like, this is literally just two teams that are all set to zero, and they're going to go, like, we are seeing the earliest version of this game possible, which is, yeah, which I think is, is pretty rad for, for Games Master. It's certainly a bit of a get, you know. It, it certainly exactly, shows yeah. that they've got some leverage at this point. There's not a huge amount of action in either of the halves. Like as soon as someone runs, they basically score the try. There's only two tries and one conversion. But what kind of elevates this for me from a watching perspective is that both Rupert and Dewey are like jostling each other when they're on like the, the playing rock. And like, so when they get into a scrum and everything, they're like barging into each other, like proper overacting to be like, oh, maybe I'll go, oh, I'll go over here. Oh, hey, hey. And that is the most fun stuff of this like the commentary is pretty good and the game looks impressive particularly at this stage of its development but the the actual action on screen isn't good it's kind of carried over by the charisma of our uh, celebrities absolutely i mean my my initial note on this challenge once it begun is i'm almost immediately reminded why i prefer to play rugby than to watch it i just get nothing out of the actual game but i do like the guys playing it and i do like the commentary they're having some fun uh, just even before the challenge begins, where Joss is like, oh, you know, you need to do a quick passing game. And Dom's just right in there going, well, that's England screwed then. It is Wales that draw first blood here as well. Like they get 7-0 and do the conversion as as things like that from the touchdown. So they go up into the end of the first half and like Rupert has got these mad, brilliant, like he's going to give it all the welly, like throwing his hand up into the air with a, yeah, go me. And then they get to the second half the only bit of action we get is right towards the end when Dewey gets a good run at it. Uh, he gets tackled towards the end, but then eventually scores his try, but then completely bollocks the conversion. Like it is a very limp attempt to try and get over the bar. Yeah, my note said a successful conversion here could force a draw. Next line. The conversion was not successful. <laughs> yeah. And this is where I think we've got some of the commentary kind of painting over the cracks a little bit. It almost even sounds like it was recorded post this challenge being done. It's all on this. If this goes over, it's a tie. Oh. It's a pathetic kick there. It's absolutely atrocious. It's made to final score. Wales have emerged this winner. Seven points to five. I know we were like right at the end of time anyway, but it feels like there's a bit of painting over the cracks, presumably, like you said, because 
there's every chance the game might have failed due to it being such an early build. Yeah, they they hadn't implemented the animation or the follow through routine or this is the sort of thing which QA testers will eventually get to when this game is actually at a point where you give it to QA testers. But it was an interesting challenge. Now, uh, Ripper, it must feel good you've managed to get revenge. What did you do today that you couldn't do at Twickenham? Um, I think it was they just played badly. That's what it was. Yeah, <laughs> it was just unlucky. It was a game of two hours and they were just unlucky. <laughs> Well, you say that they played badly. I noticed actually, Dewey, I'm pretty sure I counted three passes in a row from Argentina. Is this some new game trying? That's, that's fine coming from a Scott. <laughs> no, it'll definitely be our, ch- our chance now down in Cardiff next year. Yeah. We'll get revenge. My favourite bit of this is when, <laughs> you know, when Rupert gets the golden joystick, the goblin's like, there's like almost like a pause because Dominic goes like, the game's past the golden joystick. And then there's a bit of a pause. And that's because the goblin is running onto the set holding it like it's a rugby ball and then hikes it towards him like it's a rugby thing. He probably has to give it this catch and then they all just like bundle off the stage. It's really, really fun. Yeah, I do think that he actually nailed him in the crotch a bit when he passed the, the joystick up. I, it did give me a chuckle, but man, I love how much work these goblins are putting into this. They are, they are earning their keep. They're giving it some flavour. Yeah, exactly. Games master. I think Pink Panther and the SNES is great, but I can't get off the first level. What should I do? Well, I suppose I should help you. Kill me. Then on the continue screen, press select and up on joypad 2. This allows you to walk Pink past the game over. You will find it represented with lots and lots of red bears, each representing a level. Pick up a bear, then hold select and up, again on controller 2, to walk back across the game overlord. Go to the continue door, and you will find yourself transported to the level you want. I'm sure you'll be happy now. Thanks, Games Master. I seem to recall one of the X-Men games on the Mega Drive had a bit of a similar, like, level select thing, where you would, like, go into a sub-menu, and then you would go through and, like, punch a TV screen, and that would take you through to... the the level that you have chosen yeah i seem to remember that as well i do question the believability of someone loving the pink panther particularly if they can't get off the first level i love it so much i just keep playing the first level over and over again this was one of those games which basically parodied various different kind of films and tropes at the time the very first level on the snes version was called honey i shrunk the pink which in retrospect, that's a diamondism all of its own, but that was a deliberate reference to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids from 1989. If I remember correctly, like I am, I'm sort of like going back into my, my mind banks here. Didn't the Pink Panther have like a revival at this point in the 90s? Like it, it was like a re, like a reimagining, not reimagining, but sort of like a, a, a brought back to life from the 60s. It was like in like, like, yeah, I think it did like in like the early 90s had like a brand new TV cartoon. I remember watching it at this point in time. And he talked in it. He did, yeah. Had a massive voice cast, if I remember correctly. Like, there was loads of characters. In the 93 one, he was voiced by Matt Brewer. There, okay. That makes sense. Who was also, funnily enough, in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He played Russell Thompson Sr., the neighbour dad. That's right, yeah. And actually, like, looking at this voice cast here, it's very typical of the time. Dan Castaneda, Jim Cummings, Kath Susie. It's like a lot of the, the names that you would expect to see around this period of time. On Shadow of the Beast 2 on the Mega CD, I've got to a cage just after the acid pools, but I can't get any further. What you need to do is to use the clamp to break your locks. 
The camp is operated using the switches. Use the middle switch to move the camp above the big one. Then the bottom and top one to lower the camp and close its jaws around the rock. Now drop the boulder using the top switch and see it break into smaller rocks. Next, push the rock onto the seesaw, climb three quarters of the way up the rope and leap off onto the seesaw. If you've got it right, the rock will be catapulted into the right-hand cage. Now run into the left cage and you'll find yourself moving smoothly upwards. Elementary, don't you think? Thanks, Games Master. Shadow of the Beast uh, rears its head once again in Games Master Lexicon, but this is the Mega CD version. Uh, we've had the game featured a fair number of times. That we've had like the third one reviewed. We had it. Uh, we had Shadow of the Beast reviewed in Series One, Episode Four, and it was in the consultation zone of Episode Five. And it was a challenge in Episode Twenty Six of Series Two. I think that was Shadow of the Beast Three, which means that this Shadow of the Beast Two entry ties up the entire trilogy and by referencing the mega cd version explicitly it is the most advanced shadow of the beast at that point because the mega cd version despite not being very good did add in a completely new soundtrack there were full motion video sequences there were fully voice acted cutscenes. that was pretty cool but didn't make the game any good and in fact next generation gave the sega cd version one out of five stars i wonder why the mega cd didn't actually sell that many units huh their biggest criticism and i think why they actually gave it one out of five stars is they said four years ago this was kind of great on the amiga but now this is the mega cd and you know despite a slap of fresh paint it just ain't all that it's kind of a wonder why they didn't just make a brand new if you're doing a shadow of the beast game for the mega cd and you're going to the lengths of giving it the the bells and whistles of the video and the sound and this and other. Why not just make a whole new game, Shadow of the Beast CD, and make like a, you know, the fourth entry in the series or something, as opposed to putting a slap of paint on an older game? Bear in mind that the third one is out at this point. Maybe because it would have required work. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that about sums it up, yeah. But I do love the particular hint for this because this is not a quick hint. No, of course it's not. No. This is another Krypton Factor moment where it's just like, oh, of course, you need to smash a boulder, grab a smaller rock, climb up onto a rope, drop the rope, drop the rock onto the seesaw, jump onto the seesaw, it will come back down, catapult you out, gravity, physics, that's how it works, boom, deladele. This is, again, not one of the cheats, not one of the skips, not one of the shortcuts. This is just essentially, this is how you play a game. And I don't blame them for putting it in because I cannot see how you would have just worked this out by chance. Like literally yeah. hours of trial and error, maybe. Hey, big guy. I'm really, really bad at micro machines on the Game Gear. Do you have anything to help me? Of course I have. All you've got to do is to race around the first course breakfast bin in the wrong direction. An unusual sound will indicate that a special piece has been activated, making it impossible for you to lose the race. Even you should find yourself on the winning rostrum now. Games Master, I'm so grateful. Bloody Micro Machines featuring again. There's the Game Gear version again, which we've had on this show before in the consultation zone. It's almost like it's an incredibly popular game that is still remarkably popular even on the most unlikely of platforms. Because you take a game which is all about small cars and small graphics and then you put it on a fucking Game Gear? Even smaller. It's a Micro Micro Machines machine. Yeah, and it's pretty much just a very simple thing of just go around the course backwards and then it makes you impossible to lose a race. A fun, I, I can't remember if that works on the Mega Drive version either, if that's just a Game Gear exclusive cheat. But it's, it's a fun one nonetheless. 
almost as fun as the last asking for this hint, going, hey, big guy. Hey, big guy. What do you know? With titles like Monkey Island and The Day of the Tentacle in their back catalogue, LucasArts are easily the number one PC publishers on Earth. I went to their offices in San Francisco to see what they had in store for 1995. and spankiest of LucasArts animated adventure games. Now that my bike's fixed, I can finally get out of this town. Only problem is, I need some gas. You play Ben, a swarthy-looking hardcore biker type, and your mission is to track down a killer, clear your name of a murder rap, and save a motorcycle manufacturer from going bust, and still get home in time for Grange Hill. Now, Larry, you're the lead animator on Full Throttle. What's different about Full Throttle than, than previous LucasArts games you, you've done the animation and all for? Um, well, compared to something like Day of the Tentacle, um, we, we've designed this to be a lot more cinematic from the start. So this time around, I was involved in the, in the planning stages, and we just kind of said, well, we want to get those close-ups that'll make it more exciting or, or do something different, show a different camera angle. We animate traditionally. We start off, we get a scan like this. From here, It'll just kind of build the whole thing on the computer. You add the details, the shadows, different stuff like that, and the character. You get a little shot of him raising the eyebrow and kind of checking out these guys that are looking for him. Full Throttle will be out early next year. This is a feature that was teed up in Dom's Purple column that we had in Games Master Magazine, where he was talking about going to the LucasArts office and sort of touring around and seeing the games that they were working on. And we now see the fruits of that labor and the interviews that he did there. This is pure Dom in holiday mode as well with his nice shorts on, going around the offices of LucasArts looking at Full Throttle and the new Star Wars game. And this would be before he almost died. Exactly, yeah. This could have been like one of the last things that Dominic Diamond ever recorded. What an interesting legacy that would have been, but oh man, we see some fun looking games in development here. Full Throttle, it's not as publicly remembered, I want to say, as like Monkey Island or Sam and Max, or Day of the Tentacle, or any of the... I would say, like, of all the LucasArts games, it's probably the least remembered, apart from uh, apart from its, like, hardcore fan base that it still has. Yo, I mean, this, this is a <laughs> great game. There's a uh, Full Throttle remaster that's out there that came out way back in 2017. I'm fairly certain I've got it on Windows and possibly also as a digital download on PS4. I'd have to check, but it is a solid game. It was a great game then. It's still a great game now. It was LucasArts' 11th game, but also the 10th to use their proprietary game engine called Scum. And it was pretty well received at the time when it came out. Uh, Obviously, we'll get it a bit later in our timeline. But I I think if I remember correctly, the the thing that people criticized the most about the game was that it was way shorter than pretty much all of the other LucasArts games that were out at the time. Like, they were, you know, sort of about 40 hours or so, which this one was much, much shorter. I think I'm okay with that shorter running time. I don't need a game to be a 40-hour marathon. I still don't need a game to be a 40-hour marathon. I quite like games now that kind of sit in that maybe 10 to 30-hour completion window. Nice little games that you can just go through, get a nice experience. I still don't feel ripped off because 10 to 30 hours is a lot. And I've only got room in my life for maybe one big game at a time at the moment it's assassin's creed valhalla in a month or so it will be the second judgment game i still need to fit in a playthrough of persona 5 royale because the first edition of persona 5 was a 140 hour game time game for me that's big that's a lot of hours that it is but i got so sucked into that universe it was a joy to play and i was actually quite sad when it was over because i really 
love the characters. And that's the thing. Characters make a game for me now a lot. And so I, it's oh, why yeah. I still like games like Full Throttle, because it's got a great cast of characters. It's also got a great cast. They didn't just mm. use in-house voice acting. They did go down the road of let's get some names, including someone that we like, that Dominic's less keen on, Mr. Mark Hamill. Yeah, Mark Hamill getting work again here. Like, you know, Dominic Diamond kept asking why he doesn't get jobs. He's probably got a job in this game, Dom, and you knew that as well. Yeah, he appears as the villainous and amazingly named Adrian Ripburger. Oh, that is a good name. And in addition to splashing out on some named cast, they also licensed some music. They used a band local to the San Francisco area called the Gone Jackals and used their songs on the soundtrack. This was LucasArts making a cinematic game. And they got, you know, you mentioned the voice cast there. They were getting proper pros in to do this. Maurice LaMarche, Kath Susie, Tress McNeil. These are people who were doing like the biggest animated shows at the time. Brick coming in to do this game, along with Mark Hamill, you know, who's on Batman the Animated Series. They were not messing around with Full Throttle. And despite some resistance from management initially, they did eventually get on board with the concept. It was developed for CD-ROM and had a budget of $1.5 million. That's a fair chunk of change for back then. Although for LucasArts, that's probably a drop in the ocean. All that money they were raking in from Monkey Island. They didn't get as big as they got by spending money willy-nilly on projects. I imagine they still had to fight for that. Of course, LucasArts have more than a few passing connections to Star Wars, the latest being the eagerly awaited the Dark Forces. If you play rebel hardman Kyle Katern in this first-person Star Wars action adventure with over a dozen multi-level worlds, your first mission is to infiltrate an Imperial spaceship and steal the plans of that big, round, dangerous golf ball, the Death Star. I got him over here. Try to avoid saying it, but I have to say the D word now, Doom. What makes this better than Doom? Well, I think it has to be the, uh, the complexity and the interactivity of the environment. So when you're in the hangar of the Star Destroyer, there's ships coming and going. Dark Forces will be out next February. Uh, Star Wars Dark Forces looks awesome. And I love Dom in this interview here, where he's just like, I don't want to say the D word, but I do have to bring up Doom. And we talked about this when we talked about the, the preview that we had, which is that, yeah, everyone always brought up Doom and saying it was a Doom clone. And they kept arguing, like, no, 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 we're doing this on our own engine. This is being run on the Jedi engine. This is a brand new game. It's more textured. And it's like, it felt that every interview that LucasArts did about Star Wars Dark Forces was like, I know Doom is big, but look how much better our game is. Can we stop talking about Doom now? And when you look at it, it wasn't the cultural phenomenon that Doom was, but this game does stuff that Doom couldn't do. Like when you're in the hangars of Star Destroyers and bases and whatnot, you've got these ships going backwards and forwards overhead. The way the levels are structured are in some ways far more complicated because they're not working within the constraints of the Doom engine, they're working within their own engine developed exclusively for this. And... It's not just a mod where you go, oh, yeah, we've replaced the demons with stormtroopers. This is official. This is licensed. This has not just the weight of LucasArts behind it, but also Lucasfilm. They've got Skywalker sound. Yeah, I mean, it may just be because I'm currently editing the uh, the challenge, the, the finals of the FIFA tournament with FIFA on the 3DO. But I feel like when you look at Star Wars Dark Forces and you compare it to Doom, I think you can make the fair comparison between the step up from FIFA on the Mega Drive to FIFA on the 3DO, 
compared to Doom on the PC and Star Wars Dark Forces. Star Wars Dark Forces looks proper next-gen stuff next to Doom. And that's not a slam on Doom in the same way that me saying that the 3DO version of FIFA looks better than the version that's on the Mega Drive. It's not a slam on either of those. It's just that both of these feel like the next step in, in video games. And that's what's impressive about Dark Forces. And also something I think it's definitely got over Doom. It's got a more structured story to it. I mean, Doom has a story. Portal to hell, Doom guy, kill everything, get back. That I mean, yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that. But no one plays Doom, or certainly at least the original Doom, going, woo, story, universe building. Yeah. Dark oh, yeah. Forces has a story and dark forces is not the end of that story this does go on the characters do go on there are more games games that are still getting released and re-released now you can get some of the follow-on games for the switch i my favorite thing about this feature was just right at the end when they had a little audio clip from the game and it was the stormtrooper going like there's one set for stun which is you know like taken directly from the first film there's one set for stun we get to talk a bit more about Dark Forces very, very soon because it gets reviewed in episode 16 along with Road Rash 3 and Uniracers. Uh, but let's get into our final challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My final challenge is on the Neo Geo game King of Fighters, a rather exciting beat-em-up that features the best combinants from numerous arcade games as well as some refreshingly new characters. As usual, there are three rounds in which to decide which player takes the crown. We could talk about King of Fighters 94, and we will talk about King of Fighters 94, but I wanted to... <laughs> I think they thought this challenge was going to be a lot better than it is, because I feel like they're really excited about King of Fighters 94 on the Neo Geo, and you'll hear it very, very soon, but there is a massive sense of disappointment from both Dom and Dave about how this challenge plays out. I mean, I hate to say it, this is almost a bit Clay Fighter level. It's not... Yeah, a little bit. It's not a great showing for the game. Then imagine they thought, well, this will be really good because King of Fighters 94 was a huge, huge title and a really exciting title as well. It's like bringing together characters from other franchises, introducing new characters. King of Fighters, you know, is one of the longest running SNK licenses that they've and franchises that they've ever done. And they're still doing King of Fighters games to this day. Yeah, there's a new one being actively developed at the moment, although whether you choose to get it or not depends on how you feel about SNK's new royal owners. And we'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. But the franchise still has its fans. It still has active development. This game still has its fans. I mean, we're looking at the Neo Geo version here. There was also a Neo Geo CD version there was also versions released as part of compilations for the PS2, the PlayStation Portable, the Wii. I'm fairly certain it's been on Xbox Live Arcade. I'm pretty certain I could get it on my PC legally if I wanted. And I suspect it's also on the Switch. It's available everywhere. This game has been released so many times. And if it's not this version, then another version of King of Fighters will have been released across something. This was SNK's Avengers. This was the way they brought everything together, although it's not like this was always their end game. They realised that they had games like World Heroes, Fatal Fury, and they all had their fans, they all had their player bases. And what if we could pull some of those characters together and create something that we could sell to all of them? And that's what King of Fighters is. 
it's a way to bring franchises together to actually offer a bit of a different playing style because it is still technically a one-on-one fighting game but it's teams of three yeah which we you know i think capcom would sort of adopt when we get into the marvel versus capcom series that sort of tag team style and i really like it in king of fighters 94 i think it's a really fun thing particularly because it's like countries are being represented by certain fighters it kind of this sort of like group atmosphere to it although one of the things that king of fighters became known for is not present in this version because in future games you get to assemble your own teams you get to balance the teams out however you choose so you can have a heavy you can have a light fast mover you can have a projectile mover and that is your team that is your building whereas here the teams are the teams yeah and you get the characters that you get in that team they didn't just kind of drag stuff wholesale over from the original games and just dump it into king of fighters because that would have been a literal and technical mess they did do some redesign they did a lot to try and balance the players out some moves were removed some characters got new moves timing windows damage hit ratios they all got messed around with although interestingly despite all of these attempts to balance out the strength of the characters the art of fighting characters that appeared in this game were apparently the strongest just across the board they were the easy ones to get ahead with despite the bogard brothers from fatal fury being the ones that actually got the most attention from the developers because fatal fury was probably maybe the closest to a flagship title the snk had for fighting at the time although king of fighters would soon take its place that's it yeah like this soon becomes the flag bearer for snk and like their yearly fighting game because that is king of fighters does become a yearly event and it's essentially like almost like a fifa game but unlike fifa games they actually make changes and improvements to each of the king of fighters to add new things into it rather than just releasing the same game every year please welcome our final two challengers for today michael chandler and stephen bradley okay now michael where about you live oh in blantford near dorset in dorset in dorset and what kind of place is that boring just sit down all day on the church bench do nothing Excellent, I must visit. You, oh. you don't work for the tourist board there, do you? Oh, no. no. All right, uh, Stephen, we were talking beforehand, and, uh, and you said that your favourite film was actually exactly the same as mine, bizarrely enough, St Elmo's Fire. Who's the coolest person in St Elmo's Fire? Jed Nelson, definitely. Oh, yeah, I'm more of a sort of Rob Lowe man. No, I'm not for me. He's, he's a bit of a wussy, you know what no. I mean? Um, do you remember the thing all the boys used to do in St Elmo's yeah. Fire? What was it? Booga, booga, booga. Oh, yes. Excellent. There's all these millions of people watching, none of them got it, apart from me, you, and my fat mate Dave, actually. If he's watching. Uh, yes, if he is watching. Very, very nice, that one, Stephen. The best moments of not just the contestants that we've had so far. I, I think this is definitely my favourite moment of all the contestants that we've had thus far, because this isn't like Dominic Diamond trying to do a skit with someone. This is them bringing in knitting patterns to try and be, oh, we're a bit irreverent, oh, we're a bit funny. This is Dominic Diamond genuinely having a nice time with the contestant because they both have the same favourite film. And it's just Dominic Diamond getting to sort of like almost nerd out with a fellow St. Elmo's Fire fan. I mean, Luke, are you a Judd Nelson guy or are you a Rob Lowe guy? When with St. Elmo's Fire, I was definitely Judd Nelson. But that's only because I was a big Judd Nelson head anyway, because I, uh, you know, for all of its flaws, I really like Bender in um, in The Breakfast Club. When you're a when you're a student and you go to university, 
you're supposed to like Bender from that. Also, you know, Hot Rod from Transformers the movie. So I'm always going to be more Judd Nelson than I am Rob Lowe, despite the fact that I do love The West Wing. Yeah, I'm with you. And sorry, Dom, I'm I'm more of a Judd Nelson guy. I mean, Rob Lowe, I do like in a number of things. But when it comes to St. Elmo's Fire, it it's going to be Judd Nelson. God, what a banging theme song that film has as well. I feel like St. Elmo's Fire never gets talked about in the same level that other films from the time period do. Like of the Brat Pack movies, St. Elmo's Fire never gets brought up. It's always the usual suspects of Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles, and all this sort of stuff. St. Elmo's Fire, despite the fact it's got the best song of the lot, is almost it, it never gets talked about. Even Kevin Smith, a guy that should know this, when they bring up why are Jane Silent Bob on their way to Hollywood in Dogma, it's because of John Hughes, and they're just like, and they don't, they, they just reference fucking 16 Candles, and that's it. There is no Shermer in Illinois. <sighs> Movies are fucking bullshit. But yeah, they reenact a moment from St. Elmo's Fire, which Dom is confident will only be gotten by him, Steve, and his fat mate, Dave. <laughs> his mate, Fat Dave. And I love Steve's comment of, well, only if he's watching. I love that, uh, yeah, because that really caused that really catches Dom off guard as well. I mean, what else is Fat Dave going to be doing other than going? Do they not realise how cruel just referring to me as Fat Dave is? Uh, uh, this is potential spoilers for what happens coming up, but um, it, it because Dom and Steven get on so well, it, it sort of makes me sad that Michael wins a little bit because the banter post challenge would have been amazing, whereas poor Michael. All he's really got going for him is he lives somewhere that is very, very boring. He hasn't got much to say, unfortunately. And I think it's it's overshadowed so much because of the St. Elmo's fire stuff that it makes his answer of like sitting on on church benches doing nothing, which sounds like a very 90s teenager thing to do. And he probably looks upon those times now with much more reverence than he does talking about them here in 94. Yeah, I mean, all that's missing from his description is the things you probably don't mention when you're on national television, which is bad weed and white lightning. And ready to start the hearts of the female population fluttering is Dave Perry. Dave, the big question is, what is your hair like underneath the bandana? I don't actually have hair. It's electrodes and things like that going to a microprocessor. But, but yeah. you don't want to know about yeah. any of that, really. I don't have hair either, but it's just baldness. <laughs> um, now, um, now, this is a tag situation we're in, Dave. Uh, who for you has got the strongest pair? Well, Steve's chosen the USA side, which is full of athletes like Brian Battler, the American football player, and Heavy D, the basketball player. But Michael has South Korea, and they have the formidable Chang Kohan with his chain with a big ball on the end, which he wields about his head. And uh, he's a rather portly chap, a little like your fat mate Dave. Yes, I'm standing about that ball going around the head, Dave. It's quite, <laughs> quite fearsome, okay. Dave Perry looking like a twat is in the booth, uh, with Dominic Diamond making fun of what his hair looks like underneath the bandana. Sure, you know I'll give Dave credit, because, like, Dom, all, oh, the, the question on all of our minds, what is under the bandana? And Dave's like, oh, it's wires and electrodes and it's going into a microprocessor. And Dom's like, nah, balls to that, you're bold. <laughs> exactly. No, let me make fun of you. Don't come up with a good answer, Dave. That's not how this works. Wow. Did we really not realise how badly these two were getting on at this point? Because Dom's gunning for him right here in season four. Yeah, really so. And we've still got two seasons until it all comes to a head. Yeah, and we we talked about the the Dave Perry situation, um, not that Dave Perry situation, the this current Dave Perry situation we've got, which is that he is not on the same show that everyone else is. 
And we get that a lot here where he's very passionate about talking about these characters now, the difference, this, that, and the other. And Dom's behind him pretending to fall asleep. But, and I don't say this a lot, credit to Dave Perry. He catches Dominic off guard at the end of this when he mentions Fat Dave. And Dom, because Dom's like pretending to fall asleep to make fun of him, he just laughs and he's just like, oh yeah, actually, that was a quite a good line from Dave Perry. It really surprised me. I actually thought the Electrodes line was pretty good. It was some creative thinking. But Dave does go through the characters chosen. He says Steve has chosen Team USA. Michael has chosen the Korean side, which has a lad called Chang with a massive ball and chain. And yeah, the aforementioned line where he goes, he's a portly lad, much like your mate Fat Dave. So these two rounds here are very, very quick. They're almost gifs. And it is just Michael doing punches and kicks with Fat Dave's avatar of Chang. And he wins both of them really, really quickly, really, really easily. I reckon Dave Perry loved this game as well because Dave Perry just goes, he really is a definite contender for the gaming pool of shame. That's a shame. Like when, when Michael wins the second round really easily, he says the words, that's a shame. Yeah. I mean, it says a lot for how quick the first round is that they barely get started on commentating before it's like, oh no, he's just beating him into the ground with the ball and chain. And while he does get to use his heavy D, diamondism, a bit in the second round, the ball and chain comes back and it's just, it's all over. Michael, congratulations. That was one of the dullest, most one-sided challenges we've ever had on the show. Um, I don't even know whether we should give you the joystick because it was, it was really easy, wasn't oh, it? Oh yeah, but it's just all the special moves that I use really. You think it you just, should still get it? Overcoming. Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, well, I'll think about that while I, while I talk to Stephen. Stephen, we were getting along really well, yeah. talking about the films we like. Now, unfortunately, after that, I'm going to have to mention your hair. You are, and I'm going to have to mention your neo-Nazi cat as well. You are. Oh, I'm going to be stabbed by your rapier wit there, you Stephen. Are. But you are the long-lost son of Francis Rossi from Status Quo, aren't you? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I think so. You are. I mean, Dominic in this post-match here is brutal of, like, that. calling it the dullest, most one-sided challenge we've ever had. I'm not sure if we should even give you the joystick. Michael then says that they should because of all the special moves he used. No, mate, you use like one special move repeatedly. Oh, yeah, exactly. You were punching and kicking your way through this. Or punching and balling, maybe. Then we move on to Stephen. Oh, Stephen. And Dom seems genuinely sad, just going, we were getting on so well, and now you lost. And I'm going to have to mention your hair. And oh, Steve fires one right back at him. Saying he has a neo-Nazi haircut. And Dominic Dominic Paul's like, I suppose I do in a way. But Dom doesn't lose his stride. And he says that Steve is the long lost son of Francis Rossi from Status Quo. And Steve's like, yeah, probably. Steve's having a laugh. Steve, I mean, Steve had a terrible time uh, with the joystick uh, playing this game, but he seemed to have a lot of fun with Dominic Diamond in the pre and post match. And I think Dom actually had fun with it, despite, you know, being told he had a neo-Nazi haircut because it gives him something to work with. It gives him more to work with than church bench. I do love that Dom goes with the, well, I suppose we do have to give you the joystick, but don't clap too much. <laughs> yeah. Like golf clap this. Yeah. Just polite smattering. Well, that's it. I'm going off now to spill that bloke next to you's pint, and I'll see you in the next show. Bye-bye. Of all the outro lines we've had from Dominic Diamond as well, I think this is one of my favourites, because it also feels the most mean as well, of I'm going to go spill the pint of that bloke that's next to you. 
that bloke that he's referring to sounds bloody terrifying. It's probably Fat Dave. <laughs> yeah. But that will bring us to the end of this episode. Ash, what did you make of it? I really liked most of this episode. I didn't like the rugby challenge. It was cool to see an early, really stupidly early version of this game. But as I think we covered, I'm just not a huge fan of watching rugby. I enjoy playing it, but I'm just not a huge fan of watching rugby. The news was pretty cool. We got a bit on Power Rangers. That's always fun to talk a bit about Power Rangers. We talked about some interesting technology that didn't appear, some interesting technology that did. We had a fun little set of reviews. First challenge was okay. The game was great. But dear Lord, the kids did not want to be playing that game. And I think that's a shame. Consultation Zone, that was fine. That was kind of fun. Then we get to the last third of the show. The LucasArts feature, that was great. That was so much fun to see because you saw a couple of really stellar games there. And then King of Fighters, despite probably being the weakest challenge of all three, and indeed a contestant for the weakest challenge of the season, was actually really fun for the pre-match and the post-match banter. Like, that's what's memorable about the challenge. The challenge itself is, well, it was a very one-sided fight. But the pre-match, the St. Elmo's fire, the church branch, the post-match, Nazi haircuts, that was great. So I like this, but I, d- I don't think it's a 90% plus one. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking this is mid to low 80s for me. What are you feeling about it? I think this is an episode that is saved by the news and that feature. Because the news was really cool, like you say, you know, getting to talk about Power Rangers and the feature on LucasArts was really good. Like that feature on LucasArts, it's the show that Dominic wants Games Master to be. It is a feature about like we're looking, we're speaking with the developers. We're doing this and we're doing that. We're actually flying out to LA to go to LucasArts. That's what Dominic Diamond wants games master to be but because that's what dominic diamond wanted to be there's less focus on the challenges which dom has you know has said that it wasn't his favorite part of the show anyway and what we have here are three pretty bad challenges as much as i like super return of the jedi those two kids did not want to be playing this game as you say and it made the challenge a bit pants the rugby world cup one is cool because it's an early build but not that thrilling to watch and king of fighters 94 though a great game was a bit of a letdown because it was just you know I think Dominic Diamond's right was one of the dullest challenges that we've had thus far because it was just one-sided battering. You've mentioned Clay Fighters. I don't think you're wrong on that one. So for me, this is an episode that is saved by that news and by that feature. All the stuff that Dom wants Games Master to be. I don't even know if I can go into the 80s for this. I might go high 70s. I'm, I'm not going to go low 70s. I'm certainly going to go high 70s. I'm thinking maybe like 79. For me, the challenges really kind of let this episode down somewhat. They just sort of felt like afterthoughts. Yeah, and it's weird that we're saying that when we've had episodes where challenges were literally excised and removed. It's not bad. It's not a bad episode. It's not like I, had, I, didn't, have a, I didn't have a terrible time watching it. No, and let, let's not forget that, you know, we still think that like anything above 75%, much like with games, is probably worth a bit of a sniff every now and then. I'm thinking I'm going to go with 81. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm going to kind of split the difference. It gives us a median of 80. And it's a shame because there was so much that was great in this episode from the production standpoint. Like the commentary was really good when we actually got some. The banter yeah. between Dom and his co-hosts was really good. And indeed, the banter between him and some of the competitors was really good. Even the kids who were disinterested in Star Wars, it gave Dom something to work with. And the games themselves were good games. Well, two of them were. Jury's still out on the rugby game. I mean, it was well received when it came out, but it's not my type of game. But Return of the Jedi, King of Fighters, absolutely. But then the challenges didn't make them look great. Yeah, Yeah, I'm going to stick with 81. 
Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Under Consultation. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule if you want to get in touch with this show. We are on social media, on Twitter at UnderConsolePod, on Instagram at Under.Console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com and if you want to chat with us in real time if you want to chat with other listeners of the podcast other fans of games master retro gaming and pop culture in general you can join our discord details of which can be found on social media or in our show notes and if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, which will give you access to UCP Extra, which is this format, but about other shows from the 90s. We've done Funhouse, we've done Finders Keepers, we've done Press Gang, The X-Files, a whole host of things, and you'll also get access to Under Console Nation, our community show, where we get together once a month and do a live stream. It's available as a podcast afterwards, but we just have a chat for an hour and a half, answer your questions. It's a lot of fun. And at the £5 level, you get next week's show one week early and ad-free. And at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do you get? Well, at the £10 level, you get our Patreon merch pack, which includes mugs. They're finally back in stock. A Patreon-exclusive mug filled with sweeties, retro trading cards, Patreon exclusive stickers, badges, and £5 off our first under consultation t shirt, which is available at our website along with other stickers, badges, and mugs at underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers Xanderthal, William, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Robert, Richard, Robert, Richard, Rich Pemberton, Nick, Misha, Matty Boo, Kevin, Jamie, Gordon, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Colin, Cliff, and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We love each and every single one of you. We will see you in seven days' time because we are now past the halfway point of Series 4 already. Wow. It's gone quickly. We'll see you in seven days. Take care, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.